Last week, um, we looked at um, the start of a three-part series. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just one single chapter, Paul's longest chapter in all of his writings in the New Testament. We looked at verses 1 to 11 last week, which really Paul outlining the gospel, the good news message about Jesus Christ. What did we learn? We learned it's a word message. And it was to be received and believed by the church in Corinth and by all people. But it's a message, a gospel message, which has the power to save us. To save us to be with God for eternity, only knowing his love in heaven and glory. Now Paul articulated that, that gospel message in, in, in what many people see as a creedal form. It has some kind of, kind of poetic nature to it that would be recited. It would be well known. It begins, Christ died for our sins. How is that evidenced? That's evidenced in the burial of Jesus. You don't bury someone less than dead. Uh, and then it goes on in the gospel message. Second part is that he is then raised to new life. To bring uh, new life to those who would have faith in him. That new life is evidenced in his appearing. Jesus appeared to many people, resurrected. The point being that the gospel is incomplete without the resurrection. That is what Paul has taught, that Christ was raised from the dead. It's his big point in 1 Corinthians 15. But there's a problem. There's a problem in the church of Corinth, and we see that. Have you looked down in verse 12, if you can? The problem is, it says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you, some of the people in Corinth, were saying there's no resurrection of the dead? The problem. That is it. Some people say there is no resurrection of the dead. And that's key to the whole of this chapter. See, the Corinthians' wayward thinking that, that we see Paul challenge throughout this letter had got them into practice that we're, we're ignoring God's instructions. It, Chapter 6, chapter 11, are all kind of instances where they're ignoring what God had instructed in, in ways that he instructed them for, to live. And here the problem that they're, uh, and the thing that they're ignoring is that resurrection from the dead. They're ignoring God ha- can bring new life. It seems once again that the Corinthians have been sucked into kind of secular thinking at the time. Greek thought at the time basically said they believed in the immortality of the soul but not resurrection of the body. So what does Paul do? Uh, What he does is he takes their thinking to its logical conclusion. And you see that at the beginning in verse 13. Look at that if you can. If there's no resurrection of the dead, as some of you are saying, then not even Christ has been raised, he says. I do this with my children all the time. I mean, adults do this with children all the time. You kind of... they're doing something and you take what they're doing to its logic, well, not necessarily logical, but you take it to its extreme end. If you eat all that chocolate bun, you will explode. You take it to its extreme, you take it to its logical end, don't you? Now, I know chocolate exploding, that's not necessarily logical for you medics out there. But it's taking the point to its end, kind of concluding extreme, isn't it? And Paul says here, if there is no resurrection of the dead, as... You say, Corinthians, logical conclusion, Christ has not been raised. Why? Because if we're Christians, if we're united to Christ through faith, if we do not rise to new life, he's saying it means Christ never did. That's the logic. 
And the conclusion that he is making here, he points out seven kind of problems that, that are raised with that. Seven consequences of this kind of thinking, both for our ministry, that is making Jesus know our lives, but also for our faith, our personal faith. Look at that. I put them on your outline. I'm sorry, it's quite a full outline, isn't it? But there we go. Um, firstly, some consequences for ministry. If Christ has not been raised, and the first consequence is, it seems odd, doesn't it? Christ has not been raised. We see that in verse 13, 16. He says it again and again. That is, it's a consequence in and of itself. Simply it means Christ didn't triumph over death. The Corinthians who believed that there was no resurrection of dead, they, they never intended this, this to be a kind of consequence. Paul is essentially pressing them the logic of their position. If the dead who are in Christ will not be raised, Christ has not been raised. And Paul's argument here is, is founded on the, the kind of bonding relationship found between Jesus and those who have given their lives, their hearts, by faith to him. Christians. Because as Paul writes many times in, in, in a number of his letters, that is a union of faith it's described as. By offering ourselves to Jesus, we become united to him. Ephesians puts it a number of times in the early chapters. We are in him, literally. Let me illustrate if I can. One day I do hope uh, to teach my boys to ski. They've never skied. I like skiing though, and I used to kind of teach it a little bit uh, to when I took my uh, boys from when I was a school teacher. And, and when you teach young, young kids, you kind of get quite close to them. You kind of lock yourselves into them. It's a, wherever you turn, they kind of turn. And, uh, you know, if you go down a triple black diamond, you know, mogul slope, you go down, they go down a, you know. And if I did that with my boys, I think my wife might kill me. But, you know, uh, the point is that if you're teaching a child to ski, whatever, whatever you do, they do. You're kind of locked together. That bond is never to be broken. And similarly, if you're united to Christ by faith, then his death was for you and his resurrection is for you as you are bound to the wonderful effects of those actions of Christ. So he defeats the power of death. That is, he defeats sin through his death on the cross. And by his resurrection, he then defeats death itself. And offers you and me new eternal life in him. So you see, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, if you deny that those who are united to Christ by faith will not rise to new life when Christ returns, then you have to say the one that Christians are bound to never rose himself. You see, the bond cannot be broken. Therefore, you see... If Christ, if Christ is not raised, it has such a devastating consequence for, for our whole ministry, our whole lives as Christians. Because all our hope is based on this foundation of the gospel, that Christ will return and we will rise to new life with him. Now, Paul could have, you could have put a full stop at the end there, couldn't you? I mean... Point taken, thank you very much, Paul, but he's going to press it home. Again and again and again, by the way. He pushes their thinking even further. Look at verse 14, if you can. And if Christ has not been raised, he said, he says, our preaching is useless. 
Which is a pretty important thing in our, in our ministry, in our lives. Our preaching is useless. It's rendered useless. Why bother if Christ did not defeat death, if he's still in the grave? Why suffer the kind of the mockery that you might face if you dare to tell your friends about Jesus Christ? Why be mocked in that way? It's pointless if Christ has not been raised. The word uh, useless actually is literally translated, it should be kind of empty. You see, if you take the resurrection out of the gospel that you proclaim, you're simply, Paul is saying here, you're left with nothing. You've got nothing to say. It's like taking Simon Cowell out of The X Factor. They made a mistake with that last year. It's like taking Gary Barlow out of Take That. I know some of you really like Take That. I don't know why, but there you go. It, you, you're left with nothing. It's kind of empty, isn't it? You've got Mark Owen and a few others. It's just not going to work. You've got to have Gary there. If you take res- the resurrection out of the gospel, you've got nothing but a, a carpenter. Turned kind of rabbi. He called himself Jesus. He walked around a few thousand years ago. He did a few fancy fancy things. He kind of demonstrated a bit that he might be the son of God, but he ended up crucified. Loads of guys ended up crucified. They weren't very special. If there's an empty, it's an empty gospel. If Christ did not defeat death, there's no point sharing that gospel. And that's why Paul says here, preaching it is useless. Thirdly, let's look at that. We're false witnesses about God, he goes on there. Look at verse 15. More than that, we are then to be found false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul is kind of including himself there. He's including all the apostles, including you as well, if you proclaim Christ. Uh, All of us who testify to to Christ's resurrection, we are false witnesses about God if Christ was not raised. We say God raised Christ from the dead, but if he didn't, then we must be saying, God, you're incapable. You're incapable of that good act, and we are a false witness of you. Paul, at the end of verse 15, simply hammers the point home that he's made back in verse 13 as well. And you can imagine the Corinthians kind of going, yeah, we get it again. You don't need to go on, but he does. And Paul repair, uh, replies, I guess like a parent telling their child, you know, go and clean your room again, or even a husband telling their wife, you know, tidy up, whatever it may be. Or, you know, yeah, it's relentless. It keeps on going. So there are consequences for ministry, but there are also consequences for our faith. Let's, let's move on and look at that. Point B, consequences for our faith there. And we see, firstly, if Christ is not being faith, uh, raised, your faith, he says, is useless again. It's, it's an empty faith. Obviously, there's a link here between the preaching in verse 14. But if you take out the resurrection of Jesus, there's nothing left on which to base your trust, your belief, your faith. The only thing you can base it on is a decomposing corpse in a grave. True faith is produced by looking at Jesus Christ. Crucified, yes, but risen. Our faith is not created or sustained or increased or by looking at ourselves or looking at others and the world around us. It is only by absorbing and understanding more and more that beautiful reality and the wonderful implications of the
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you say Christ has not been raised, then your faith, our faith, is utterly empty and useless. Secondly, you see it says there, in verse 17, he presses it hard, he says, you're still in your sins. Look at verse 17 with me if you can. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. We know, uh, as we looked at Romans last year, many of us, that the wages of St. Paul says that it is death. It's the consequences for our rebellion against God, our turning our back against God is death. Uh, Jesus may have died for our sins, but if Jesus stayed dead, listen to the two possible kind of conclusions. Firstly, that he was not a sinless person as he claimed, and death marked his final separation from God. Or secondly, yeah, he may have been without his own personal sin, but his attempts to be, as he claims to be, that sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice who substituted himself for us to take away the wages of sin and place them on himself. The implication here is that it just didn't get the thumbs up from God. Either way, If Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. We are cut off from God's love and we will have to face his eternal judgment. Thirdly, very quickly, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. You see that in verse 18? You see that there? What he means by that is eternally lost. Eternally away from the love of God and kindness and the grace of God, and only knowing his justice. And the logic of their argument, which is Paul is pressing home here, I guess hits a quite a personal note here. And what he's saying is that, guys, your friends and family, who, who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is, who have died, they, they may have been Christians, but if I press your argument home, you may be united to him by faith, but... If they're dead and Christ has not been raised, they will eternally perish because Christ has not brought new life. It's sobering, isn't it? Fourthly there, he says, lastly, and I think this is at the lowest point of this little uh, section, uh, he says, if only for this life, in verse 19, we have hope in Christ. If, If you only have hope today, And in the next few years, whilst you roam on this planet, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied, pitied, more than all men. Any expectation of life beyond death evaporates here. We're left with kind of a pseudo-gospel, which may give some meaning to today and tomorrow at work and and the weeks and years ahead. But only by following an example. We're left with just a mentor if Christ has not been raised. Yeah, a good teacher maybe to compare with other kind of teachers of world religions or cult leaders. But he cannot, if he's not raised from the dead, he cannot be saviour. And he cannot be lord, king over death and life itself. I guess as we look around, you know, you might look at the magazines and Metro and so on on the way to work these days. People, 
they try to gain meaning, don't they, by, by being a follower of something. You know, maybe it be a celebrity or a sports person. They, they get on Twitter and whatever it may be, Facebook. But they follow all sorts of things and find out all about them. Uh, and it gives them some meaning. I'm a supporter of this. I'm a follower of that. And so on. And they do that, I guess, as a glimmer of trying to find real meaning, true reality about the bigger things of life and death. But you see, if the Christian life is based on such an empty, kind of vacuous gospel, and and a fraudulent saviour who kind of came and claimed all these things but just ended up in a grave, what Paul is saying here is anyone, anyone, whatever they follow is better is better off than the Christian. You Christians out here, if you're here today and you're a Christian, if Christ has not been raised, you are to be pitied more than anyone else. So Paul, you see, what he's done is he's, he entertains their kind of hypothetical no-resurrection argument and the logical consequences, I said, I guess would have pretty much shocked them. There's been seven there. It's pretty hard-hitting stuff, isn't it? And I hope he's done that to, to, to help their minds kind of readjust, to, to rethink what they've been saying. But Paul continues. Now he turns a little bit more positive, which is quite a relief, isn't it? Um, and he does that by now demonstrating that Christ's resurrection has made the resurrection of the dead both necessary and possible. He begins, if you look, have a look at verse 20 if you can. It's a bit of a turn in the passage, noted by that very kind of striking but at the beginning. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And we get to our second point here. It's going to be a bit more brief, um, but here we are. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. As Paul said back in verse 12, Christ is the first fruits of an immense harvest to come. And what Paul is saying is that Christ has risen and, all, and for all who are united to him, they will follow. They are the harvest that will come after us. He's the first fruits of it and they will follow if we're united to him. That is, he's saying that he's the beginning of what is to happen. He inaugurates. This kind of, the dead rising to new life. If he did it, and he did, evidence shows in history that he did. Those who are united to him by faith, who have either fallen asleep, that is, died in this life, they will be raised. And if Christ returns now, we will be with him and receive that new eternal life with him. But let me point out some consequences for the future. They're going to map out in the first couple of verses there. Uh, He outlines the necessity of us being raised and how we're able to be raised. Look at verse 21 and 22. Look at that. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. I'd love to spend a whole kind of week on this kind of second section because it's pretty dense here. But what Paul is doing here is he's referring, if you like, to the extremities of the history of death, if we can put it that way. It's a strange way of putting it, but there we go. The the extremities of the history of death. What he's saying here, and we will know as we were looking in in Romans last year, we are um, 
if you like, united to Adam. He's the first man before God. Uh, he's our ancestor. And with him, he brought death as a consequence for his sin. But it was like a virus. And, and therefore, all of us as ancestors of Adam received that sin. Uh, it's called an original sin. Uh, you know, and nothing can get rid of it. No, no vaccine, no self-help guide can rid the body of sin and its consequences. We are all in Adam, therefore we are sinful at birth. And most parents can pretty honestly say, yeah, that's, that's quite clear. Death came through a man, Adam. And so Paul is saying here, a man, someone in the same order, was needed to reverse that process, to bring life, not death. And Christ's resurrection, you see, effected that reversal within humanity. Begin in Adam. So you see, we know the necessity because as we are all in Adam, we will all die. But we can see how it's made possible by looking to the resurrection of Jesus. We may as well look at Christ and see him as, if you like, a, a contract, if you like, for us. The same is waiting for you if you remain in me, if you put your faith in me. Now remember, Paul is not trying to deal here with the, the general resurrection of the dead. Uh, that is, those who do not know Jesus through faith, that relationship with him. He makes no reference here to the condemnation and the justice that people deserve. I say that gently because there may be some here who that may be true of. We'll talk a little bit about that later at the end. Rather, what he's doing here, he's speaking very specifically to a church, to people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's trying to encourage them in the resurrection, new life that Jesus has brought. And he, con he continues by showing the order of things to come. Cast your eyes down, if you can, to verse 23. But each in their own turn, this is the, if you like, the order of resurrection. Christ first, tick that one, that's happened. The first fruit then, when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come. Now what, what that really is mapping out is what we call the end times. From the time that Christ first came to the time that he will uh, return to judge uh, we see there at the end of verse 24, uh, he will rule. And in verse 25, that rule of Christ is shown to be the fulfillment there of Psalm 110. Many of you remember those words that are written down there. But lastly, in verse 26, the greatest enemy is then destroyed. Death itself. But lastly, when the most magnificent battle is won, uh, when, when, when the, the, the most magnificent battle is won, when the victor strolls back into his rightful position of honour and respect and worship and rightful praise, we see this most extraordinary thing happen. It is gobsmacking. Look at it, it's outrageously humble. The, the son, see, the obedient son of God will have just won the battle of all battles. He deserves everything. He deserves all the praise. As his life on earth, he was born in humility. He did everything in humility 
He even died in humility. Yet you see when you get to verse 28, the risen, glorified, defeater of death, Christ will return. You expect him to kind of come in as the great kind of heavyweight boxer, you know, into the ring with this MC calling out of all these great things that are about to happen. And look, verse 28, when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him. Why? He does this in obedience and humility. So as it says, God may be all in all, that his father may be everything. And it will be then complete. The order of the resurrection will be, will be final, it will be finished, and everything will be done when the, when the father is all in all. Let me just turn, if I can, to, to, so you might see what that looks like for us at that moment, if, we're, if we are united with Christ. I want to turn, if I can, to John's words in, in Revelation. You know them well, but I think it, it kind of brings a, kind of a sense of reality to what that might look like for us personally. It's better than any of us could ever imagine. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, because Jesus has done everything, it's complete. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? And here's the the key, for the old order, John says, the old order of things has passed away. Jesus has completed that. We're now going to be living in a new order. The consequence for the future should be, it should thrill us. It should be a lump in our throats because Jesus has been raised for us and we in Christ shall rise with him on that day when he returns. Now people get all sorts of, they get very fussy, don't they, about the length of his rule on this earth and how long that will be and... Churches in America seem to split over this particular issue on a weekly basis, and that is a sad thing. What is most important, I think, is that it will happen. The evidence is in Christ being raised and his appearing. It will happen for me, and it will happen for you. And therefore, my life and your life needs to be offered to God for this great gift of new life. We also know it will happen, and therefore, we must tell people. If Christ is coming, if, he's, if, if new life is, is, is offered in him, we, surely you want to tell someone about that. Because it's only in those in Christ who will be raised. Let's uh, look finally, very quickly, for the consequences for the present Now, the practice, uh, it's an odd practice, isn't it? Look at verse 29. Uh, for those, Paul is writing this letter and they're baptising people for, for the dead who weren't baptised. He, he's simply asking, if, if you think there's no resurrection for the dead, why are you bothering with that? It's a strange practice, isn't it? There's not kind of any sense in what they're doing. It, it seems that people were baptising people as substitutes for those who hadn't been baptised before they died. 
Now, Paul is not here condoning the practice, so don't, don't get him wrong here. Rather, he's saying, yes, life is tough, and people are dying because of their faith in, in their thousands in, in this period that he's writing in. But why baptise the dead if you think there's no resurrection of the dead? Makes no sense. And he continues, therefore, looking at himself, look at verse 30, saying, yeah, life is tough. People are going to die, so why do I bother preaching this? Living such a precarious life if there's no resurrection. Again, it makes no sense. And the same is true for any of us here if we are Christians. We must understand the great significance here, the comfort and the hope that the resurrection gives us today. We can see how important this is in the severity of Paul's warnings that come at the, last, at the end of these verses. I'm not going to spend too much time on these. I think they're fairly self-explanatory. But look at verse 33 and 34 if we can to close. He says this, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. There, there seemed to be uh, some in the Corinthian church who were misleading people. They're bad company. And they were corrupting the character and the thinking of some of the Corinthian church. He says, what does he Come back to your senses, verse 34, as you ought, and stop sinning. It's that serious. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. See, the only convincing reason we link God the Father to the person and the work of Jesus is the fact of the resurrection. That's how serious Paul is taking this, oh, there's no resurrection of the dead. The fact that Jesus is resurrected and glorified is, is God's vindication of his son. It's demonstrating God is the only one who has power over death. If Jesus rose from the dead, God raised him. And we will be raised by him too if we put our faith in Jesus. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Let me say two little notes to Christians if you're here today as a Christian. Live in the light of this truth. Making your friends aware of this saving gospel message. Secondly, Christians, the resurrection is the verifiable sign that sin and judgment have been dealt with in the Lord Jesus so as Paul says here, do not be led astray. Don't downgrade this truth in your heart or your mind. Because this truth of resurrection life brings freedom. It brings joy today, tomorrow, at work. Every day before you meet the risen Saviour face to face. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. But there'll be some people here, I'm sure, who are not Christians. Can I just say this gently to finish? Ponder this truth. Spend some time this week thinking these things through. Read this passage again. Check up on the veracity of a man who claims to have risen from the dead, to have defeated death. Notice that the writer Paul here actually assumes this is historically true doesn't feel the need to justify the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, if you look at the other histories of the time, there, there's no other writer who's saying, there's this guy Paul, he's written a 
dodgy letter to the Corinthians. He's claimed that Jesus rose from the dead, but we all know he didn't. There's no history, there's no counter history to this history. But what does that mean for you? Well, you may be thinking, as in verse 32, Paul summarises, I guess, London life pretty well, doesn't he? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But hear Paul's warning. Do not be misled by that worldview. I don't think many of you think that life now is just all there is. So my, my gentle word to you is stop living as if that were true. Christ has been raised and what are you going to do about that? Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, this is just mind-blowing. In some sense, we, we really struggle with the fact that a man dies and yet appears to 500 people on just one occasion and appears to numerous people over a month. It doesn't make sense, and yet it happened. That you are over and above all that we understand in science and kind of rational thinking. It blows our minds. And yet it also comforts us because it means that you, God, the creator God, you're bigger, you're greater than anything that we know and understand. And sometimes we might be tempted to say, oh yeah, we're not sure about rising to new life. The resurrection of the dead, it doesn't seem to make sense as the Corinthians had kind of strayed that way in their thinking. Help us listen to Paul's words that you have given him and see that if we go that way in our thinking, we lose everything. So help us cling to this historically verifiable truth that Christ has been raised and therefore one day all of us will rise and either will face you in your justice and be found wanting or we will face you being bound to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith and are his life being counted, his perfect life being counted as ours and you will welcome us home to enjoy you, to rejoice with you, to praise your son who's given us new life for eternity. Lord, those things are massive, but they're either going to fill us with joy or a sense of trepidation today. So if there are any people here who do not know whether they are those who are bound to you through faith, please, please help them to ponder this truth. Help them to think afresh and look at the evidence and ask questions. And as Paul says, to not be misled. We ask this for your glory's sake. Amen. Thank you, Andy.